gathered around it. But we're talking about a wedding today in our passage, so it was just research really. Um, if you guys want to stand with me, we'll begin this morning with our call to worship taken from Psalm 104. A lot of great imagery in this passage, some that will even come up later, but um, I'll read the bold section if you'll follow along after me. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth. And wine is glad in the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I I will sing praise to my God while I have need. Amen. Let's sing this morning. Um, if you want to turn to hymn number three, we'll sing Holy, Holy, Holy. Oh. 
this. Um, Isaiah has a, an encounter with the Lord, and he actually uh, is in the, the throne room. Um, and it's always, uh, for me, when I'm doing my own reading, I, I always um, get excited when uh, somebody tries to describe the throne room of God because they just, they try to paint this picture and they, you know, they use all these words to create this imagery of something that you just can't, you can't put words on. And then the other, um, the other thing that's always present when somebody encounters the Lord face to face is their realization of their own state um, and, and they're often falling on their face before, before our holy God. And so um, we read in chapter 6 of Isaiah, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. Each of them had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Will you pray with me this prayer of confession this morning? Heavenly Father, you are high and lifted up, the King above all kings, who dwells in unapproachable light. When we, like Isaiah, see a vision of your holiness, we are undone before you. We who are quick to pronounce woes on others are left speechless and can only cry out, Woe is me. We are unclean before you and in greater need of your cleansing power. Forgive us, Lord, for the sake of Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Please turn to hymn number 150. We will sing, When I Survey the Wonderful Cross. This is fairly new. Last week was our first time singing it. Um, but I just want to highlight, I guess for me, the last verse. It says, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. And it sounds like if you could have the whole world and all that's in it, it's still not compared at all to the glory of uh, Christ and the salvation that we have in Christ. So would you please turn to hymn number 150? We'll sing this great hymn. When I survey. 
course, we know the Lord never leaves us where we're at. And um, in the midst of Isaiah's experience in the throne room, he's humbled before the Lord. And he continues on in that same passage by saying, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. You guys will uh, pray with me this morning. Um, God, we just thank you so much that you are uh, a God who does not leave us uh, where we're at. Um, we know that you're, you're a holy God, and, and that, is, that is seen so clearly in the scriptures, but um, you're also a God who has made a way for us to be with you in the midst of our unholiness. Um, this morning, I just I want to lift up Covenant Grace Church in, in Syracuse, Utah. We pray for them many times, and, and God, I just pray that, um, that you would give the leaders wisdom in, in their shepherding. Um, that they would be guided by your spirit. I pray that you would uh, help them to persevere in the midst of um, a difficult culture there in Utah, um, in the midst of some uh, pretty serious deception that um, the culture is experience, uh, experiencing out there. I just pray that you would um, unite them as a church and continue to build them and equip them. And then, of course, most importantly, I pray that your gospel goes forth and that in all of it, your glory shines through. In Jesus' name, amen. Our confession of faith this morning comes from the Baptist Catechism, question 37. And it asks, what is justification? You guys will read the answer with me. Justification is an act of God's free grace. Wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Amen. You guys can be seated this morning. Of John's gospel. 
there's kind of a lot of different sections in John's Gospel. There's the prologue, there's kind of this introduction, and then we get John's ministry as sort of a first introduction, Jesus' ministry, and then we begin what many call the Book of Signs, which is from chapters 2 all the way to chapter 12 of John's Gospel. We get what theologians call the Book of Signs, and this is where we see seven signs recorded in John's Gospel. We see seven signs, beginning with the one that we'll look at today, that John intentionally chooses seven signs. He says there's a lot of other things I could have talked about, other signs that Jesus did, but I selected these for a specific purpose. And we'll see it culminate, this, the signs kind of get bigger and bigger and cul culminate in the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. And John's sort of interesting because he doesn't use the same word that the other Gospels do. Anytime Jesus performs a miracle in Matthew or Mark or Luke, it's almost exclusively the word miracle is used to describe what Jesus did. If he heals someone or casts out a demon or all these other things, the word miracle is used. But John, interestingly enough, uses the word sign. And he uses it over and over. He says this is the signs that Jesus did. This was the first sign that Christ did. So we have to ask ourselves, why this change? Why is John changing the words here? What is John's purpose? And if we think about what a sign is, what is the purpose of a sign? If you think about if you're driving down the road and you see a sign that says, Decatur, 10 miles. The purpose of the sign is to point you to Decatur. The sign itself is not Decatur. <laughs> It's just telling you what's coming up. It's a pointer. It's a sign that's pointing you to the true reality. And so John, in using this word sign, is communicating something. That these signs, these various things that Jesus performs, they're pointers. We're not meant to be focused on the signs themselves, but the signs are meant to point us to the reality, which is Christ. And that as we go through John's Gospel, it becomes very clear why John uses this word signs, because people become infatuated with these things. And they want Jesus because he gives them bread. They want Jesus because he can walk on water. And they don't want Jesus himself. They want these signs. And so we're supposed to read this word signs, and as we begin this book of signs, just as an overview, we'll see the intentionality that John uses here. His focus is not primarily on the authority of the Messiah, but the identity of the Messiah. Not so much on the power of Jesus, but on the person of Jesus, on what he will do, on who he is. So hopefully we'll see that this morning with the first sign, turning water into wine. So if you want to follow along with me in chapter 2, I'll read verses 1 through 12. I'll pray for us, and then we'll get started. This is the word of the Lord. And on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. 
Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water that had now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then, when people have drunk freely, the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your holy, infallible word that you have given us this morning, that you might speak to us, that you have a word for us this morning from your word. And as we look at this first sign that Jesus performs, pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see our great need this morning, our great need of Christ, and that we might not focus only on the miracle, only on the sign that Jesus performs, but that our eyes might see what the sign points to, that the glory of the incarnate Son of God who came for us and for our salvation to save and redeem his people. So may we see that this morning. May your spirit come and indwell us that we might know and understand and see the truth and that we might be transformed this morning, that we would not stay where we're at, but we would be transformed and changed and that you would receive all the glory for this. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So... Simple outline this morning. First, we'll look at the setting of this sign in the first couple verses. Then we'll look at the sign itself, the actual thing that Jesus performs. And then we'll take a little bit of time to look at the significance of the sign. So if you want to follow along with me in verse 1, we see on the third day. So we've talked a little bit about this, that this would have been the first week of Jesus' ministry and on this this would have been the seventh day. Most weddings were on the seventh day, the Sabbath, where they would have this feast. And as we said, this is sort of the beginning of Jesus' signs, and he enters the land of Cana. And we see that Jesus comes to this wedding, where not only his mother was invited, Mary, but him and the disciples. But if you look at the text, it's really interesting. No one's name is named. Mary isn't named. She's just called the mother of Jesus. The disciples aren't named. The bride isn't named. The groom isn't named. The master of the feast isn't named. The servants aren't named. That John here only names Jesus. <laughs> He's telling us what the point of the story is. It's not about these other people. It's about Christ, that the focus of this sign is Jesus. Now, weddings in that day were not like weddings today. As I said, we went to a wedding yesterday. It maybe lasted seven hours from beginning. To, I mean, not the whole, you know, the wedding and the, and the feast and the celebration. Weddings in this day would last seven days, <laughs> not seven hours, seven days. 
They were big events. There was food, music, dancing, celebration. And wine was a central part of this celebration for obvious reasons. <laughs> if you don't have wine for seven days, you might get pretty bored <laughs> if all you have is water, right? So wine in that culture was a symbol of joy. We read this morning in our call to worship. Wine is a symbol of gladness, of rejoicing, of joy. And it would have kept the feast from, in one sense, being a big disappointment <laughs> for seven days of this happening with no wine. But we see that that very thing happens, that the wine runs out. And this would have been an even bigger deal in that culture because people would even sue people if, they, if the party had to stop early. Like, this was a big deal. <laughs> this was the party to be at, and if for some reason it had to stop, people would file lawsuits against one another because of this. So this was a big deal. And to not have wine at your wedding, at your festival, would have been a symbol of, of barrenness, of almost famine, of dryness, that you've run out of wine, how can this happen? And we see Mary stay here, she speaks to Jesus, and she says, they have no wine. And Jesus' answer to her is sort of puzzling. If you look at his answer there in verse 4, he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So three things to point out about Jesus' answer. He addresses her as woman, not as mother, not as Mary, but as woman. Now in this culture, to do this would not have necessarily been rude or impolite. You know, Jesus isn't, you know, sinning here. We have to, Jesus was sinless. But he's, in a sense, communicating something that, especially from a son to a mother, Using this language of woman would have indicated some distance between them. That there's something that Mary's not understanding. And so Jesus uses this word mother here. And then he responds and says, what does this have to do with me? That this was a rebuke of some sort. Now all Mary had said was, they have no wine. <laughs> she didn't say anything to him like, go do something. She didn't tell him to do something. She wasn't even asking him a question. She's just making a statement. But she's implying something in her statement. That Jesus is supposed to act, right? They have no wine. Jesus, you need to act. You need to do something. And based on Jesus' answer, he's saying that, just because you're my mother doesn't mean you get to determine what I do. That I have a will that's superior to your will, and that's the will of the Father. That he has come not to do the will of Mary or the will of his brothers, we'll see later on in John chapter 7, but he's come to do the will of his Father. And he says there, in so many words at the end, he says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. What is Jesus referring to here? That throughout John's gospel, he'll actually use this phrase 26 times, referring to the hour, the hour, the hour. And every time, it's referring to the same thing. The sufferings and glory of Christ. His death and his resurrection. So why does Jesus bring this up here? It seems sort of odd. Mary just asked him about wine. <laughs> She's just saying there's no wine. And he's talking about the hour of his death and resurrection. Well, Mary would have known the Old Testament. She actually had an angel come to her and tell her that she was going to give birth to Christ and the Messiah. 
And in the Old Testament, this imagery of wine overflowing, an abundance of wine, was a picture of imagery that was used to talk about this age when the Messiah would come. It would be this time where wine would be in abundance. And so it's almost as if Mary's suggesting that she knows Jesus is the Messiah, that she should, that she should expect there to be this abundance of wine when he comes. But Mary doesn't mention his death, she doesn't mention his resurrection, she doesn't mention any of these things, and yet Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. And as we've gone through John's Gospel, there's not been a lot of information. All we've seen is John say, this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We've seen them call, refer to Jesus as the Messiah. And so what Jesus is about to do through this turning of water into wine is he's going to say, this is a sign of what I'm going to do. This is going to be a sign of my hour. This is what my death in one sense is going to look like. One pastor called it an acted out parable. That in what he's about to do, he's going to show them what the hour of his death and resurrection is going to do and what it's going to bring about. And then we see Mary almost echo the words of Pharaoh in the book of Genesis, talking about Joseph. She says, do whatever he tells you. She understood that she had to wait. <laughs> that this is not about her, it was not about her will, that it was about the will of the Father. That it was going to be in Christ's timing, that family would not override this, that it would be according to the Father's plan. So that's the setting. So in verse 6, we turn to the sign itself. So the stage is set for this event. There's no wine. They're at a wedding. There's a massive party, a seven-day event, and they've run out of wine. And Jesus does something here. And John points out some interesting details. We see in verse 6 that there were six stone water jars that were used for purification, these Jewish rites of purification. So note two things about this. First, the quantity of these jars. These were massive. <laughs> Your translation might say 20 to 30 gallons, but they would call these two to three measures. So this means between these six jars, there would have been 120 to 180 gallons of water. So these things are massive. There is an abundance of water here. And also note the function, that they were used for the Jewish rites of purification. And that can kind of seem, I think, when, if you're reading this in your Bible time or something, that can kind of seem like a throwaway comment, a throwaway statement. They were used for purification. But in that day, in order to meet the requirements of the law, a person had to continually purify themselves, especially at these different feasts, that they would use these waters for washing, for purifying, for cleansing, so they could be ceremonially clean. They would wash their hands, they would wash their utensils, everything would need to be purified. I liked what one commentator said, he called these the waters of the law. The waters of the law. That the purpose was for ceremonial cleansing. And we'll see as we go through this sign that this is no accident. That all scripture is breathed out by God, that even the smallest detail is there for a reason, that there's not one jot or tittle that can be taken away, that all of it is important, and hopefully we'll see that 
as we go. And it's very interesting that these are the vessels that Jesus chooses to fill up. And we see that's what he does in verse 7. He tells the servants, fill up the jars. And then he says, fill them up to the brim. Fill them up to the brim. So there's no room for deception here. There's no half full where he can drop in some concentrate or something to make it taste like wine or anything like that. They are full to the brim. There's no deception. There's no underhandedness going on. These are full to the brim. And I just point out that these vessels of the law are full. They're all the way full. And then in verse 8, he tells the servants to draw out some of this water that's now become wine and take it to the masters of the feast. So the servants here, you have to kind of picture in your mind, what are they thinking? <laughs> They've just filled up these giant jars of water and they're supposed to draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And they're thinking... That's great. He didn't ask for water. You know, they don't even know what's going on here. It's a very discreet way that Jesus is performing this miracle. They don't even know what's happening, really. And so they take it to the master of the feast, and we see that he tastes the water that's now become wine, and he declares that it's not just any wine, but the best wine. It's not just any wine, it's the best wine. That It's amazing that Jesus does this. This is the master of the feast. He has no idea what's going on. And yet, he is able to proclaim that this is the best wine. This is the best. That people normally serve the bad wine last, right? After you've had the good stuff, after you're feeling better, then you serve the not-so-great stuff. But we see here that Christ has turned this water into the best wine. And we see this response of not only the master of the feast, but of the disciples. That they saw this sign, the first of Jesus' signs, and he manifested his glory, and they believed in him. So this is the sign. So now we have to talk about the significance of this sign. Because again, it can be easy to read over this and just focus on the sign itself. And maybe even draw some superficial conclusions, right? Like, weddings are good because Jesus went to a wedding. Or, it means it's okay to drink wine because Jesus turned water into wine. And not that none of those things can be proven from Scripture, but why is this sign here? Why does John, he only puts seven signs in his whole gospel. Why is this one here? What's the significance of it? The first thing is that Jesus is no mere man. That it would take months to ferment wine. I don't know if you've ever, any of you have ever tried to make wine. I used to make my own beer. It takes a whole month just to make beer, let alone wine. It can take multiple months. And if you want to make good wine that's not cheap $2 Aldi wine, it's probably going to take a couple years, right? <laughs> it's going to take a couple years. So Jesus here turns this water into wine. This wasn't faked, it wasn't fabricated, it was real. He is the Son of God. If we remember what John said in the prologue, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That this is what the disciples saw. They witnessed this sign. They saw Jesus take the water, turn it into wine, and they said, this is the Messiah. This is the one promised in the Old Testament, the Son of Glory, the Messiah Himself, the Word made flesh. 
And I liked how one pastor said it. He said, he did what he did because he was who he was. He did what he did because he was who he was. He was not a mere man. He wasn't just going around performing miracles. He was the Son of God. He did what he did because he was who he was. The second significance is, as we talked about at the beginning, this is a sign. This is a sign. This is a pointer. We're not meant to focus just on the water made wine. It's an indicator. It's a pointer, not just to the power of Jesus to miraculously turn water into wine, but it's to describe Jesus' person, who he is, and what he came to do. That Christ is the true Lamb of God that has come to make a new way of purification. He's come to make a new way of purification, not through the waters of the law, but through the wine of his own blood. That, as we'll go through John's Gospel, wine and blood go together. What does John say in John chapter 6? Jesus says, if you don't drink my blood, you have no part in me. That blood and wine were symbolic of each other. That here we see that the ceremonial law could only purify outwardly, right? The people had to wash their hands before they ate. It could only purify externally. And it had to be repeated over and over again, whether it was the sacrifices or the offerings or the washings. That these jars of purification that Jesus filled up with water were symbolic of the Old Covenant, of the law itself, that they ultimately could only wash externally. They could not take away sins. And so Christ is coming as the bringer of this new covenant, of this new covenant, that he would be the one that would bring true, lasting forgiveness, that where these jars of water had to be repeated over and over again, Christ, in the sacrifice of himself, by means of his own blood, would bring about a true, lasting forgiveness. And not just forgiveness, but joy, right? Wine is symbolic of joy. He fills these jars with wine, symbolic of joy. And as I said, in the Old Testament, and especially, it's very interesting, in, in Jeremiah 31, there's this picture of wine flowing in abundance. And God says, I will take your sorrow and turn it into joy. And then a little bit after that, we get these great promises of this new covenant that's not going to be like the old, but it will bring true forgiveness. He says, I will forgive your iniquity. I will remember your sin no more. That Jesus is saying here that there's an hour coming. There's an hour coming at my death and resurrection where these old ways will be done away with and I will bring lasting purification, lasting atonement, lasting joy. And notice how it's not separated from the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, but it is a fulfillment of it. That Christ in His coming is not doing away with these purifications, but He's accomplishing what they pointed to. What's it say on the Sermon on the Mount? I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. 
that Christ here, in filling up these waters of the law, is saying, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to fill the law per perfectly. I'm going to fulfill it at every point. And by my death and resurrection, by my perfect righteousness, I'm going to bring true purification. That doesn't have to be repeated, but is lasting. And through the sacrifice of his own blood, he extends to us the cup of wine. The cup of the new covenant, the cup of joy. And this is unlike the wine at Canaan, which would eventually run out. But his wine, his blood, his atonement would not. So we have to ask ourselves this morning what is our response to this? What's our response to this first sign that Jesus did? How are we supposed to respond? Are we just supposed to say, that was a really cool thing that Jesus did, you know? Even liberal theologians will say, it wasn't really supernatural, right? It wasn't a real miracle. He tricked them, or maybe they were too drunk to recognize what was going on. No, this was a real, bona fide miracle. So what's our response to Jesus taking the waters of the law and turning them into wine? We're supposed to see the glory of Christ. Like his disciples. The disciples saw his glory and believed that this is no ordinary man. This is not just a man from Nazareth, as Nathaniel said. This is the King of Israel, the Son of God. And I think sometimes, whether we recognize it or not, we can read a passage like this and we can think, God, his disciples saw a miracle and believed. That's what I need to believe. I need a miracle. I need a sign. I need you to show me something. I'm not going to believe until I see this sign. That you, you'll hear people say this in the world. If I saw a sign, if I saw God act, then I would believe. Then I would trust. Then I would believe in Christ. Then I would turn from my sin. But only if I saw a miracle or a sign or whatever it is. And in Luke chapter 16, Jesus says, If we do not hear the law and the prophets... We won't even believe if a man is raised from the dead. That we need to hear God's word. And that's why John wrote this gospel. What does John say in John chapter 20? What's the thesis of his whole gospel? These things are written so that you might believe. That he records the miracles so that we might believe. So we might see the glory of Christ. Not with the eyes of our flesh, but with the eyes of our heart. That we might see that Jesus is no mere man, that he is the bringer of this new covenant, the gospel of Christ. And so how do we respond? Well, first, as we talked about this morning in our catechism service, we have to see our need. We have to see our need. We have to see our guilt. We have to see our need for purification and cleansing. That if we don't see our need, then what need do we have of a Savior? That we need to be like Isaiah, that saw the glory of the Lord and was undone before him. That he saw his uncleanness. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips. And that when we see the depths of our sin and our misery, it makes the grace of Christ all the more glorious. And that it's only when we see the manifold grace of God in the gospel that we can trust in what Jesus did here. 
That he filled up the law perfectly. He fulfilled the law at every point, never failing. So that we might drink this cup of wine, this cup of blessing. What is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Galatians 4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. What's it say in 1 John? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us by the blood of Christ from all unrighteousness. That this blood cleanses us as we sing. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. That this blood, this wine, symbolizes our washing in this new covenant where there is forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. But it's amazing that this grace that God gives us in the gospel transforms us. It doesn't leave us in our old way of life. It doesn't leave us where we were at. It transforms us. That one of the blessings of this new covenant is not only forgiveness of sins, it's not only iniquity atoned for, but what does Jeremiah say? I will put my law within you. I will write it on your heart. That out of gratitude for what God has done in the gospel, we don't want to stay in our sin. We want to pursue righteousness. We want to obey God's commands. That this grace is transforming. It's powerful. It doesn't leave us where we at. It sanctifies us and brings us to glory. And I'm reminded of the final marriage recorded in the Bible, in the book of Revelation. We see another wedding, another marriage, another feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And John, who also wrote the book of Revelation, says this, When I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That we are blessed to be invited to this final supper. What does Jesus tell his disciples when he institutes the Lord's Supper? He says, I'm not going to drink of this cup again until I drink it anew with you in the new creation. That what we do every week when we take the Lord's Supper is not, it's a, it's a foretaste, it's a forward looking. We're looking to that final day. One pastor said, when Christ cracks open the 2,000-year-old bottle of wine and we drink the cup anew with him where there'll be no sin, no mourning, no tears, and we will look forward to that great day. So may we look to that day where we will receive the cup anew, where this 
wedding at Cana could only point to, this wine that Christ made could only point to, and one day we will drink of that reality in full. So let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for, for Christ, for this sign. And even though there's things in it that we might not understand fully, may we see this morning the glory of Christ. And may we, like the disciples, see and believe that these things are written not so we can have our own thing, but so that we might believe and know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in His name. True, abundant life. Lasting joy that's not bound by the things of this world, but is reaching into heaven itself, to the new heavens and the new earth, in which righteousness dwells. And so may we look forward to that day, this, this morning in part, may we repent of our sins and may we turn to Christ, who's fulfilled the law for us and given us the cup of friendship. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen. So we come each week to this, to this supper, to the Lord's Supper, where we're reminded that in and of itself, it is a sign. It's a sign. It's a seal. I was talking to some guys this week. Think about all the covenants in Scripture. They all have signs associated with them that tell us promises about that covenant. Think about Noah. What's the rainbow in the sky for? It's a promise of God's covenant with Noah that he would preserve creation, that he would not flood it again. And so these elements behind me are signs. They are signs of God's new covenant promises. What are the promises of the new covenant? Forgiveness of sins, iniquity atoned for, the law written on our heart, and the spirit given to us to dwell within us. And so as we look at these signs of bread and wine behind me, we're reminded of Christ's body broken, his blood shed, and we're also meant to look forward to that day, as I said. So, if you're not a believer, if you're not repenting of your sin, then these things have no sign, they have no significance, because they point to realities that believers are believing in by faith. And so, if you're not a believer, we ask that you don't partake. But if you are, we ask that you come repenting of your sin, specifically, thinking of the ways that you've sinned against God this week, against your neighbor, but ultimately trusting in Christ, rejoicing in this joyous cup of blessing that, think about it, Jesus, he saved the event, he saved the feast. It could have been a totally miserable event, and he came and he made wine where there was not, symbolizing the joy that he brings us, that we have great joy, that we shouldn't be this shouldn't be a funeral procession, as one person said, but a joyous event, a joyous feast where we eat and drink of Christ by faith. And we're reminded of Christ's promise in John 6 when he says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. So would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you for the bread and the wine that you have brought great joy to us 
this morning, not because of works that we have done, not because we have fulfilled the law, but because you have. You filled it to the brim, and by your Spirit have given us the benefits of redemption. And so this morning, as we eat the bread and drink the cup, may we feast on Christ. May we see these means of grace and be assured of our salvation, that as surely as Christ's body and blood was spilled for us, that we have forgiveness, forgiveness of our sins, true, lasting purification that will last from here to eternity. So may we look with the eyes of faith this morning, and may we taste and see that the Lord is good. Pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. So you want to form a line and get the elements as you So this bread that we break is a remembrance of Christ's body broken for us. So would we take, eat, remember, and believe that Christ's body was broken so that ours might be spared and so that our sin might be forgiven? And this cup of blessing, this cup of joy, this wine that we drink is a cup of communion with Christ, that his blood was spilled so that ours might be spared, so that our sin and our iniquity might be purified. So would we take, eat, and drink, remember and believe that Christ's blood was spilled for the forgiveness of all of our sins. Amen. If you want to stand... And we'll respond to God for this great <laughs> redemption that he's accomplished. And we'll sing Psalm 23 and we'll sing it to the tune of Amazing Grace.
Please join with me as we sing the doxology. Praise God from whom. 
receive the benediction from the book of Hebrews. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. A couple quick announcements. Um, as you can see there, next week, following our service, we're going to have a brief members meeting. So we'll have like a 10-minute break next week, and then we'll have a quick members meeting. But if you're not a member, you're still invited to come and just see how we do business. Um, I did have some agendas from that. Um, if every family wants to take one, or Andrew would mind passing these out, just one to each family. Um, in our Constitution, I not only need to say when we're going to have a meeting, but also let you guys know what is going to be said at that meeting, so you're not surprised by anything, so I don't try to <laughs> pass something off, right? So it's to keep us all accountable there. And you'll see one of the big things on that agenda is Abel um, here is uh, wanting to become a member. And so part of that process, because we're congregational, is I've met with Abel, but now the time for the congregation to ask him questions and just privately, not right now, <laughs> but just um, get to know more about him, his testimony, and his um, profession of faith. And then next week we will formally um, vote on that and have him become a member of the Lord God. And then shortly after that, we're going to have a fellowship lunch, as Andrew might say, a good old barbecue. We're going to get some get some barbecue, and we'll meet in the back conference room back there. So if you guys could just bring aside some chips, something that goes with barbecue, I don't know, coleslaw or whatever people like. So um, it'll be a good time where we can just hang out and fellowship. So those are the announcements. So have a good week.